Hello and welcome to the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. I am, as ever, myself, Adam Duritz. And I am also, as ever, here with my friend and compatriot, James Campion. <laughs> the lovely and talented James Campion. <laughs> well, <laughs> the lovely and somewhat delayed James Campion. Why is it when you kick it to me, it's like me trying to swing at a 68-mile-an-hour curveball from... From a guy throwing 100 miles an hour. I'm always, my knees buckle every time you throw to me. I don't know Nothing's why. harder when you're really on the spot <laughs> than remembering your own name. <laughs> Anyways, let's just get started. We're doing road songs today. This was James's idea, so we're going to kick it right off with a particularly ridiculous one. I would uh, check the, the lyric in, I think it's the second verse. The time's real short. You know the distance is long. I'd like to have a jet, but it's not in the song. <laughs> Here's Bachman Turner Overdrive with Roll On Down the Highway. Woo!
B-T-O. Not fragile. I think that's on Not Fragile. Or maybe I, it's on Bachman Turner Overdrive 2. I don't know. Yes. those guys, That's a great way to start. I just want to say that one of the reasons why I came up with this idea is my friend is going to be on the road when you probably hear this. So I was just thinking about it today, and I'm thinking about how there must be a billion songs about bands, not only traveling and getting excited to play on the road and traveling through America, traveling abroad, but just the banality of it, just the long bus rides and the lonely hotel rooms. And then, of course, the wildness of it and just the, you know, I, I just spent a couple of weeks on the road with County Crows last summer. And I got to tell you, just those couple of days in Toronto when you guys are off, you tend to, if you're just in a hotel room, <laughs> you go a little batty, you know. And I uh, went and walked around the city, which is great. I had never seen Toronto before. And the reason why I bring up Toronto is that those guys, well, I think Randy Bachman was in the Guess Who. Oh, yeah. Produced their later records, the later 60s records were produced by Jack Richardson, who was a mentor to Bob Ezrin. And Bob told me some great stories about Jack. Jack being the first executive producer of the Alice Cooper records that Bob worked on. Then eventually, Bob ended up branching off and, and becoming famous for producing um, uh, Alice Cooper. But we talked about Toronto and the giant radio stations coming out of Canada that affected America. Oh, yeah. and, and about how Canada, I mean, this is a Canadian band of Canadian players that played in several bands, Bachman Turner Overdrive, and their roots in Canada, which is kind of neat, and um, how it affected mid-America rock and roll. I mean, that kind of rock and roll is, is the kind of stuff I grew up with. I really like a lot of things about the Guess Who, but when he left the Guess Who, and they, especially their singer, Burton Cummings Jr., who's just a great singer. Yes. I just love the sound of his voice, and I, he makes me think of when I was a little kid, and I had like... KTEL and Runko Records, or and and you know that had all yes. the hits on it, fantastic, and it would and have like super hits, twenty hits, and it would have like I remember Share the Land, but I also remember I had this uh, this little turntable that I'd play in my room, and it, and it had forty you know different speeds on it, and I used to really like playing uh, things at forty five to hear what people's voices sound like sped, <laughs> sped up, sped up, specifically the Guess Who because of uh, Burton Cummings' voice. Maybe I was there to share the land that they giving away. We all live together. I'm talking about together sick, now. Baby, I'll be there man. to take my hand. Baby, I'll be there to share the land we'll be giving away. We all live together. That's I'm talking sad. about together now. That is just like, I have this, such a vivid childhood memory of that specific record played at 45 and the sound of his voice and how like oh, the timber of man. it at 45 just as good. That's fantastic. The BTO, man, the, the dry like crunchy guitars and his like his solos are killer on there they're just like that's just like quintessential like 70s oh, yeah. heavy metal light heavy metal rock Fog pop hat yeah you know, marshall tucker band that's more country-esque but you know that kind of like guitar like you said guitar rock that was but they had a the knack. radio i mean like fog had one or two you know hit but like bto had a shitload of hit songs business i mean they wrote a lot let it ride yes um, they had a lot of uh, a lot of hits, you know. They they were really good at writing those three minute songs, you know, that just killed you. Had great guitar riffs, a great chorus, uh, and a cool solo. All the ingredients, you know. And you know they were. It's a great pick for the opening of this theme because they toured all the time. They were one of those bands that were constantly on the road and played with other, you know, open for a ton of acts and then just kept touring. They were a true touring act, you know, crisscrossing. Uh, all the other acts in, uh, in America, winter, summer, fall, spring, I mean, constantly on the road. So, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good one. Let it roll down the highway. <laughs> uh, it's a good song. 
What's going on? I got another one here that I've been wanting to play. Uh, I love this band. This is a... We talked about Graham Parsons. This is Graham Parsons' first band before he was in the Flying Burrito Brothers um, back in like 1967, which is right around... When is Altamont? 69. So it's a couple years later when he's there. Um, But uh, this is a song called Luxury Liner from the International Submarine Band, which I absolutely love this band. I love this song. Uh, it gets covered later on by his background singer. Uh, I think Amy Lou Harris actually has a record called Luxury Liner, which she plays this song on it. But this is uh, Graham, a young, young Graham Parsons in the International Submarine Band. Check this one out. Luxury liner, 40 tons of steel. If I don't find my baby now, then I guess I never will. I've been a long lost soul for a long, long time. I've been around. Everybody ought to know what's on my mind. You think I'm lonesome, so do. So do I Well, I'm the kind of guy That likes to make a living running round And I don't need a stranger To tell me that my baby's let me down You think I'm lonesome So do I, so do I No one in this whole wide world can change the way I feel I've been a long lost soul for a long, long time I've been around, everybody ought to know what's on my mind You think I'm lonesome, so do I, so do I Tell me that my baby's let me down You think I'm lonesome, so do I, so do I Hit it. Uh, there's uh, quite a few things I'd like to say about this. Now, first of all, I want people to understand this is 1967. This is a kid from California, right? He's playing in a this. That's truly country music. Now, there's been a lot of credit, and rightfully so. When I was doing research for the Warren Zevon uh, album and the L.A. Sound, given to 
Bob Dylan and the band for what they did in Saugerties in 68 and 69. And it came publicly out in John Wesley Harding, where everyone was psychedelia, strings and backwards tracks and experiment and chamber music. Bob was putting out a record of hymns with biblical references and country uh, chord changes. Then he does Nashville Skyline in 69 with a bunch of cats from Nashville. But prior to that, nobody with long hair, young kid, like except for Graham Parsons, was doing country music, what they ended up calling the Appalachian kind of Bakersfield sound, which blew up in the 70s with Linda Ronstadt, the Eagles, James Taylor Records, uh, you know, influenced all the way through, which became country rock. Not the country rock like Allman Brothers, but, you know, the, the country laid-back acoustic sound. Graham Parsons is doing this in 1967, and this is before he completely changed the world with the birds, uh, and then what he did with the Flying Burrito Brothers. It's just an amazing foresight. This is a guy who truly loved country music, and, by the way, completely affected how the Stones wrote songs. Oh, absolutely. 1, There's a reason for that, percent. though, because... They they met him. They listened to what he was doing, especially Keith. Especially Keith. And they were so inspired by this, like, uh, uh, this completely original version of Americana that he had, where he had looked at country music and seen, like, I don't know, what, Hank Williams and some of the people at the, at the soul of country music, and he had said, this is rock and roll, and I'm going to play it like that, as opposed to Nashville, which was doing things in a much, much slicker vein. You know, he, he you know, I don't know what year is Buck Owens out, out with it's it's after this right it's I a couple, so I mean it's spectacular I mean Keith Richards writes Wild Horses because of his inspiration he he says it you know it's not about with Graham Parsons it's not about Basically. Graham Parsons but it is entirely inspired by Graham Parsons you know Absolutely. to write that kind of a song and even before Keith met him and they hung out together and he affects everything the whole countryside of Exile Main Street you mentioned Wild Horses Dead Flowers which is on Sticky Fingers oh yeah but Keith was listening to this stuff. When he wrote, you know, uh, Dear Doctor and Parachute Woman and all the kind of country flavored songs or No Expectations on uh, Beggar's Banquet, that's a 68 record. This predates that. I mean, what Graham Parsons affect, how he affected rock and roll music, and Adam makes the best point. Hippies or young rock and rollers or people like that viewed Nashville and these you know, Oki from Muskoki, you know, we don't smoke pot or we carry a gun. That, that there was that. Well, but that and part of Nashville. But no, it's not just. But on the, that part of Nashville, like Oki from Muskoki, which is what? That's, is that Merle Haggard or Waylon Jennings? I think that's Merle Haggard. But, I mean, that's closer to this. What, you know, that's closer to rock and roll than the really slick country that's all, you know, to use to use the the, uh, the word gussied up, you know, the really slick, highly <laughs> produced. Because Oki from Muskogee is at least kind of outlaw country. That sort of uh, Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson end of things, which is at least also kind of pure pure country, like like uh, the stuff that that Graham Parsons was playing. Yeah, I, I actually, I wouldn't just because it's conservative doesn't make it not like rock and roll. Because that's just point. a political view. Because Oki from Muskogee is a guy from that from that place saying like hey I'm a real American and you may not agree with that politically what he's saying but he's still playing it like pure country music you know and that's but it's you know they were thinking about sort of the slicker stuff that was coming out of Nashville cuz Oki from Muskogee's not slick right now you're saying musically that's a good point I want to conflate yeah. the two what I'm saying is that what what he did what Grant Parsons did was he made it 
He started, and Bob Dylan took it, and the band nailed it home. Made it not only okay to play country music again, and didn't make it like, oh, that's just a bunch of hicks that hate us, you know, us long hairs, and made it an art form that and and that the Stones embraced, and all these other counterculture bands embraced. That's what I was. I was talking oh yeah, about. absolutely. Yeah. But you make a great point. There is a slickness if you listen to Nashville Skyline and the way Dylan is singing "Lay Lady Lay" compared to what he did a year earlier. On John Wesley Harding, which trans, you know, it, it it's the transition between the pill popping hippie esque stuff that you hear on uh, on um, on Blonde on Blonde, and what he did in Saugerties with the band. And when the band's first album came out, that completely changed the landscape of rock music. Completely and utterly changed it. But underneath it all, inspiring everybody is Graham Parsons. Well, because the band's album is a few years later. That's not till like 1970, isn't it? 68. The first one? Oh, is music from Big Pink 68? I think 68. I didn't realize it was that early. Um, but I up. mean, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the really revolutionary thing about Graham Parsons isn't the, the lyrical stance, it's the musical stance. And that is, you know, in keeping with Waylon Jennings, Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson, those guys. I don't know what your Guy Clark is. It's got to be right around the same time, too. There's There are guys doing this kind of music that's sort of like a real outlaw country, but he's doing it. And, and mixing a little more rock and roll in, you know, which has another effect later on when he plays with the birds and they make that incredible country album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, one of my favorite records. It's a great record. Um, you know, which we play, uh, You Ain't Going Nowhere on Underwater Sunshine, and we've been playing it for years. Uh, and that is a song from the Basement Tapes, I believe, isn't it? That, uh, I believe so. That Graham Parsons plays. It's the first song on uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Right. Which was originally a Graham Parsons vocal uh, but they had to replace all his vocals on that album. It's funny, the effect he has, because he's not even really singing le- any leads on that record. McGuinn is doing an incredible Graham Parsons impersonation. All It sounds like Graham Parsons. It does, yeah. Um, but he's singing the backgrounds mostly. And think about Graham Parsons. I mean, he changed the Birds. The Birds, a huge pop band of the 60s, who, again, famously covered and made hits out of Mr. Tambourine Man and quite a few other uh, Bob Dylan songs. And that is an amazing... A guy who influenced... Really, a structured music, and I know this is not really the theme of the of the podcast, but it needs to be said because when I was listening to that, tapping my foot to it, and just listening to the authenticity of the chord changes and the way he phrases that, the point you made earlier about Hank Williams, or if I may, George Jones, um, that kind of country music is the kind of country music that was kind of lost on Nashville at that time. Yeah, and I still think is because I think modern country music is just rock and roll music with fiddles. And, you know, guys with cowboy hats and songs about pickup trucks. But they're, that, those are rock and roll songs. I mean, they could have been written by Desmond Child, the men on a Bon Jovi album, but they happen to be the subject matter. But what Graham Parsons is doing is he's stripping it way back to early 20th century country music, which, was, it, which is gutsy as hell in 1967. And even in 2018, it's a gutsy move. Well, there's a reason, like, isn't it Mutt Lang who... Uh Produced all the Def Leppard records, but yeah. also produced his wife's records, which oh, yeah, Shania, Shania Twain. Twain. Yeah. Which, if you listen to him care, and that's explosion of new country at that point. If you listen really carefully to the Shania Twain records, they 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 really quietly underneath all the uh, twangy instruments is a backing track that sounds straight off a Def Leppard record. It's, it's all power vocals. chords and guitars, and, and then on yeah. top of it, you have uh, mandolins <laughs> and fiddles, yes, and pedal steel. But it, you know. Uh, he he went straight from doing Def Leppard to doing Shania Twain. Had huge hits with both of them, and they're incredibly similar. Right. Um, it's just 
they don't seem like it on top, but underneath it, they, they are kind of okay. similar musically. Excellent point, bringing um, the Shania Twain. That affected it. I want to play you a song right now that is, uh, well, I always think of it as a road song. It, there's nothing strictly in the lyrics that say it is, but I've always pictured this as the woman saying that she's, she's out on the road away from home. She doesn't know where someone is, and he's traveling to somewhere else, and she just wants him to call her as soon as he gets where he's going. Hmm. Um, I don't know why. You know, I looked at. I, you know, this is a song that I immediately thought of when you said road songs, and when I, I was playing it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is the quintessential road song." In a way, uh, taken from a different perspective, it's not a litany of hotel rooms I've been in or the room. The, it's just like someone's experience on the road. When I looked at the lyrics, I'm not sure there's anything in there that actually says that, but it's always resonated like that for me. So. Uh, I get it. I get it because whenever I hear me and Julio about down by the schoolyard, it just reminds me of being a kid in the Bronx. I know it's kind of like about a New York, but that song reeks of New York to me. Even though you, it could be anything, it'd be about anything. Oh, I think it is New York. He's a New Yorker. Well, Couldn't he's a New Yorker. Yeah. But if you don't know that, but I was going to say that somebody like yourself who has been on the road for his entire adult life, or been traveling, or yeah, playing yeah. in a band, anything that speaks to you that way informs this episode yeah and this song always has and i actually found this version there's an album of aretha franklin live at the fillmore west and it's it's this complete record it has the full shows from march 5th 6th and 7th 1971 at the fillmore west with her band and it's it's incredible i i can't remember what the record's called exactly it is called don't fight the feeling yeah don't fight the feeling live at the fillmore west March 5th through 7th, 1971. It just released a few years ago, but it's such a great... It's like a bootleg because it's the complete record. And uh, this is the last night. And her version of Call Me on March 7th is just... There's three versions. She plays it every night. And it's completely different every night. And I had a trouble deciding which one to play, but I think this one's the best one. Um, <laughs> anyways, this is like Aretha Franklin, Call Me. And it's always seemed like a a road song to her about being on the road and missing someone and just like being a little paranoid and wanting to know where they are and like she just communicates so much and she yeah she kills me she time after time that's Aretha Aretha just surprises me more and more with just how much better than everyone else she is and (laughs) uh anyways check her out right here check her out this is Aretha Franklin call me
Essentially, that whole song is okay. The chorus is, "I love you." Call me the moment you get there. There isn't really a verse. I mean, it kind of is. She's like, "My dearest, my dearest darlings, I know we have to part, baby. It doesn't really hurt that bad because you're taking me with you, and I'm keeping you here in my heart." That's it. That's the only verse there really is. But she manages to make that last between those two things for like. 
five or six minutes just because she is so true. Like that shit is true. I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm speechless. It's like it's it's incendiary. It's like Quicksilver. I don't know what to say about that that voice of hers and her and the band I and mean, the background singers are doing an amazing oh, yeah, job no, giving her killer arrangements, which a lot of which is her. Like in the studio, she played a lot of the piano on oh, those she records because sure she was so good on the piano. Her yeah. feel, especially Atlantic shit. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's Jerry Wexler producing, but it's really her. Just like she ran those sessions. She sure did. Yeah, man, that is just fucking killer. Uh and yeah, she could have been reading again. The, the, the she could have been singing the the phone book. You know, it's just it, it it's just incredible. You're just swept away by the sound of it all. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, in the last few years, there have been some incredible uh, live albums released by her that are really like these uh, completest things, and that they're just whole concerts. I'm trying to remember which. Well, it reminds were- me we played the Ella's a couple of uh, you know podcasts ago or a while ago. And it's great hearing those shows in their entirety. And the way we were playing them that day, you were explaining, oh, this song comes right after that. It gives you the flow of the show. It gives you the idea of how the person performs. I love that people are doing that more and more now and that these record companies going through their vaults and releasing it. Because, you know, Ella, just as much as Aretha, great recording artists, pristine voices, wonderful uh, uh, storytellers in song. But live, these people are another level. Yeah, these, I are, mean, these are not. They are. This is another. This is a species all itself. Although I mean, I will say this on record: they're also. Oh, I mean, yeah. Ella and Aretha in particular; those two singers, <coughs> on record, the studio recordings are also Agreed. a cut above anything anyone else is doing as singers. This this album is live at the Fillmore West. It's like the. Uh, it also contains the entirety of King Curtis is opening the shows with his band, the sax player King Curtis. Wow. And uh, that's on the collection. It has his sets too. Oh, nice! It's the whole shows every night, and he also w- plays with her. I was going to say, which why there's those killer in. sax yeah. lines on there. Yeah, I mean, then they're doing like they do Eleanor Rigby every night. It's she's so good. The band is killer. One of those shows, I think uh, Ray Charles shows up and does all the the encores. Whether they're doing like 20 minutes of Spirit in the Dark, I think with Ray Charles, I can't remember which ones it is. I think it's this. And there's also one in Philly called Oh Me Oh My, Live in Philly, which is a, the next year, 72, uh, which is a fantastic concert, too. I think Rhino put that out. Um, but that's it's the sentiment of that song that kind of reminds you of being away from home or being on the road or being out there performing and being kind of detached from everyday reality. Is that... Or, well, or well just, you don't know where everybody is. And, you know, like, so, you, you know, especially back then when she's recording it, you know, we did, there's no cell phones. So the only way we had to get a hold of people was their home telephones. Yeah. There was no email. There's no cell phones at first. So when someone's, you know, not around or traveling from one place to another, you're really out of touch. You know, when you're yeah. traveling and then someone else is traveling, you can't find anybody. You know, having relationship troubles... That's what I remember most. Like back in those days, when you had relationship troubles and you're touring, you know, you just can't reach anybody. Yeah. You have to both be home at the same time and you're never home. And if you do call them from the gig, you know, you're on a payphone in like a stairwell like a at the gig with people around, you know? Yeah, that's true. It's a. Uh, yeah, calling from hotels then cost a fortune. It, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's, Speaking of hotels. Um, yes. So there's lots of travel in this. 
But also, one thing that Adam pointed out to me before we started was there's some hotel songs in here, which had never occurred to me. I was thinking more like on the bus, on the road, out there, on an airplane, trying to deal with this, this feeling. My, my friend Eric Hutchinson, who tours all the time, he said he had to get away from touring for a year because it's just not natural to be on an airplane and then you're somewhere else thousands of miles away in like four hours. It just freaks you out. You know, that's what I was thinking of in the road songs. You know? Well, the really omnipresent thing in touring isn't, isn't uh, even the motion itself. It's, it's hotels. That's where you really are touring. More than anything else, you're in these hotel rooms. It, it, it's like, it's like a, the bus is more like a submarine, you know, like you, you get up and you're in a hotel room, you get on the bus, drive for a little while to a, like you're under, you pop your head back up again above water and you walk in the back of some brick building on an alleyway, which is the theater, but it just looks like a, the back of the building where you walk in and you're in a sort of dank, usually, you know, building. And then you're in a, in a backstage room, which is the same as every other backstage room you've been in. You play for a while in front of people. You go back to the backstage you go back on the bus, you're underwater. Either you pop up in that hotel or you drive overnight to another city and you pop up in another hotel, um, which looks exactly like the last hotel. And then you get on the bus and you pop up again in a backstage at a different place, which looks exactly like the last place. And then you go back on the bus. You know, it's just like bus hotel, bus backstage, <laughs> bus hotel, bus backstage, over and over and over again. You know, it's these... And they all look strangely the same. You know, the only differences are like maybe what you see when you get on stage. But often that's the same too. You know, the people are different, but you don't know that. You, you, they could be the same people. Right. You're staring you know? into these lights. I found interesting about gets two things that were interesting. Sleeping on a bus, which is bizarro land. The movement of it is crazy. Even and, and everybody warned me, when the bus stops, you will wake up. Which yeah. made no sense to me. But I did. And then also the idea of getting to the arena early, the soundtrack, it's kind of light out, it's quiet, everyone's kind of milling about, you know, it's a weird sort of not really rock and roll-y thing. Then you guys go back and then emerge again to the lights and the crowd and scream, you know what I mean? That's, it's this weird two, two or three versions of how the show goes. It's very yeah, odd. there's a lot of like, it's a lot of alone time with each, just with each other, the small group of you, whatever your group, of, you know, your band and your crew. This group of like 20 people that you are, that you live with, you know, and that, that is your, your world for a while. And then every once in a while, the 20 of you also encounter 20,000 other people who appear <laughs> strangely on the other side of a line, you know, yeah. they're not allowed to cross. Right. And then you go back to it being the 20 of you again. And then, you know, then you go into the bus and it's the 20 of you again on stage the next day. And then you go into the back and eat something. And when you come back out, these 20,000 other people have arrived again. Dressed in slightly different clothes, but a lot of the same clothes because you're selling it to them. Well, the, the cool thing you guys do now, and a lot of bands do it, is the VIP meet and greet thing. And it's interesting, too, because it's like you guys are in this insulation, and, and you're really playing to this mass audience. But I love when the people come up and talk to you, and it's like, hey, you're putting faces to them. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really great connection between people who love the band and then the band itself who's in this traveling cocoon. I love the submarine metaphor. Uh, just for a few seconds, you get to pop out of it and meet the people. And that's why I say, you know, writing for me is a very isolating – it is. It's an isolating art form. You're not really sure, at least if you're in a band and you're working on music, where you could go out and play the music and people are cheering, yeah, okay, yeah, I like that song. Um, so when I do a book tour, I do like a book signings. That's great. It's like totally coming out of this this underground. I feel like a, a groundhog or something, you know, coming up. 
and and being able to meet people and have them say, hey, I really like the last book or, hey, you know, what's this book about? And getting to actually talk to people who are your audience is really a cool thing. It, it, it takes you out of your your um, your capsule in a sense. But it's great because a tour is a giant, you know, it's, it is like a giant submarine. And you have to pop up and then you stop at this place and you play and then you go to the next one. You know? it's, a, it's a weird life. Uh, yeah. So listen, back in 1974, uh, after the release of their second album, Radio City, Big Star, the uh, legendary Memphis band, uh, who by this time, and the, uh, they play, they get invited to play for this uh, music writers convention in Memphis, I think is where it is. This was a big deal, people. And like a lot of these music writers hadn't, they had heard, some of them had heard of Big Star, others hadn't. They were so good that day in front of the most jaded audience that could possibly exist. A bunch of music writers. And it's the first time the critics were ever in the one place at one time. These are, these are very competitive people from Cream Magazine, Rolling Stones, Circus, Crawdaddy, all over the, all over the world. Yeah, it's every famous music writer that ever was in, in the early 70s. You know, right. They're all at this one gig. And Big Star is the local band that gets chosen to play. And they're so good. They actually get a crowd of music writers, this is very well documented, up on their feet dancing. And they're freaking out at how great this band is, this band that will never be heard by anyone uh, in, their, in their time during their existence. Um, as he's during the, the concert, in getting ready to play one of the songs off the first album, and one of the things Alex Chilton says is that it's already out of print. The second <laughs> album has just been released. The first album is already out of print, which you won't understand nowadays because nothing goes out of print. But that means like, you couldn't find it couldn't anymore. It. Like the second album is just coming out, and the first album is gone. It's impossible to find because there were only a few, and they've disappeared. Right. Um, and they're playing this concert, and by this time, Alex Chilton, by the way, has been in the music business for probably well. At, at the age of fifteen, he auditioned for this band, The Box Tops, and gets the gig. He sings the song, "The Letter," which you've all heard. Yes. Lonely days are gone. I'll be coming home, mm. my baby. She wrote me a letter. Right, Joe Cocker did a nice, nice version of that. And he's like 16, 15 when he sings it. Uh, I think he lies about his age. Ends up going on the road, which seems like fun, except it's not really. It's probably horrible. He's on all these shitty buses, you know, with a bunch of other bands on these group tours. Which they used to do in long, the 60s, right? Yeah, and they would play long bus rides in school buses, though, not like tour buses. Right, and they used to do like three shows a day. Yeah. It's crazy. They play for 15 minutes and jump back off. I know the Who always talked about those really quick shows. That was the Tammy ones. They do the tours. Yeah. With, yeah, but anyway, go ahead, please. And uh, Alex. And it, it actually turns out to, for a 15-year-old kid, it's kind of a terrible experience. He, he comes <laughs> back home after it, you know, ends up starting, going to college for a minute and starting Big Star. And again, they're met with no success. Um Anyways, they make their second album, and they're going to break up a little while after this, pretty much. Um, everyone will be gone but him and Jody, the drummer. And he, uh, they play this show, and it's recorded. And it was released about, I don't know, 20 years ago maybe now, when they released all the, the Big Star albums again on CD, on Ryko Disc. And it's called Big Star Live. And on this, this recording, he plays, he covers a Loudon Rainwright song. He takes a break by himself just to play acoustic guitar. And sing a few songs. And he covers this Loudon Wainwright song called Motel Blues, uh, which is a pretty devastating, sad song about touring, the the tawdriness of it, the loneliness of it, uh, the kind of the, the horror, the lonely horror of it. And uh, Alex does this version of it that is just withering and like 
you can tell he's already wrecked and exhausted and like scarred by being a musician <laughs> more than anything else. So yeah, like scarred. Anyway, you should hear this because this is a whole other view of life on the road and like. And it's a great song. Yeah. This is Loudon Wainwright Jr.'s song, Motel Blues. This is Big Star covering it. Uh, 1974 from Big Star Live, Motel Blues. Um, this is one called Motel Blues. shuts off at two What can a lonely rock and roller do The bed's so big The sheets are clean Your girlfriend said you were 19 The styrofoam ice buckets full of ice Come up to my motel room I don't want to make no late night New York calls I don't want to stare at those ugly grass mad walls Chronologically I know you're young But when you kiss me in the club you bid my tongue I'll write a song for you and put it on my next LP Come up to my motel room and sleep with me. There's a Bible in the drawer, don't be afraid I'll put up a sign to warn the cleanup maid There's lots of soap and lots of towels Never mind those desk clerk scowls I'll buy you breakfast, they'll think you're my wife up to my motel room and save my life. Thank you. I buy you breakfast, they'll think you're my wife, come up to my home hotel room and save my life. That is really good. His voice is just so filled with pathos. And it, and I've heard a lot of Alex's stuff, and 
thanks to you, I mean, I, I knew of Big Star and I knew their big hits, but you've introduced me to a lot of their things. When we first started working on the book together, you gave me like a box set of their stuff. And, and nothing has reminded me more of your vocal style than that version of that. That really does remind me of how you, you could have been influenced by that. I love the naked, raw expression of that. And I, and I love the fact that he's singing a song that's not even his song, but he's owning it, as we said, with Aretha and, and Ella, and really expressing it, as you said before we played it, in the most emotional way. It's just, it just, it depicts isolation. It depicts just not really sure where you are in the, in the world. Like, where, where am I? And I? I'm in a hotel room, but am I, what city am I in? What time is it? That's what that song just completely reeks of. The styrofoam ice bucket's full of ice. You know, yeah. come up to my motel room and treat me nice. It's just there's something so mundane and horrible about it. It's it's beautiful, painful song to me. He's his voice always just so filled with like pain. Is the, the yes, obvious anguish. Like, there's an yeah. anguish there, and 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 and, and, and motel is a key aspect of it. It's like when Warren sings about you know this motel will be standing instead of hotel. This is not your glamorous Hyatt house, you know the plaza with the Beatles sort of romantic idea of rock and roll wrecking the room, you know this fancy place with Keith Moon. This is a shitty, probably car drive up motel with styrofoam buckets for ice, and he's just hand to mouth in this. You know he's on the road just trying to get through. You know just a traveling troubadour trying to get through, but the way he sings it, uh, it's. And for him to sing that later in his career shows how many miles of road he has traveled. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it doesn't seem all that late. Like when I met Alex, it's twenty years after that. You know, yeah. it's, it's literally twenty years later. I met him in '94. Twenty years after that. I mean, that's later in his career. Like this is, he's still. I don't know what, how old he is, 20, 23, 24? I don't, I, I don't remember. Well, I mean, the Box Top song was what, 66, 67? Was it that early? Check the know. letter. So I'm trying to think if he was 15, 16 then. Yeah, I mean, he's probably been in the music business for 10 years. This is not his first rodeo. I mean, he's, he's had a lot of miles behind him. He still sounds so young, though. He's 24. Jeez. Yeah. He's... he's born in ninth he's born at the end of 19 december 28th 1950 so like it's a kid yeah he's 24 at this point he's already had a long career in the music business he's been in the business for like nine years as a professional musician he starts so young you know that's and we should say loudon wainwright was not an old man when he wrote that song either you know we can talk about later we're going to talk about a little bit about uh ben queller and ben also starts really young you know ben is uh 15 when he starts that band 14 or 15 when he starts that band radish and he's on tour and you know he gets signed at like 15 by the time he makes his solo records he's he's 20 when he makes his first solo album but he's had a you know five-year career already starting at the age of 15 he you know a little different because you know independent music is a little more fun at this point he had like a maybe a better life but uh yeah, he's also very, very young uh, to be in the music business. Um, and yet that's amazing, too, when you think of him 20, being in a solo career, or, you know, Alex Chilton singing in a box top hit when he's 15, when you consider how legendary it was that 
you know, a, a trucker from Memphis stumbles into Sun Records and records a couple of songs at 1819, and we think, wow, Elvis, wow, he, he was a babe, you know? And these guys had already been in the music business for like half a decade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, not quite as young, but I think still young, and his finest record, I still believe, and a record entirely about being on the road called Running on Empty. Um, Jackson Brown recorded this record, I believe, almost entirely live, either on the stage, in buses, and in hotel rooms. There's a wonderful uh, song, Cocaine, in there that he records in a hotel room, um, Running on Empty from the stage, a song, his quintessential road song, we'll play a version of that a little later, um, by someone else. It's but, like, yeah, they're, there's, they're on buses. You can yeah, hear the bus. You can hear in the background. There's one that's recorded in a hotel room where uh, the, the drummer's playing with his, he's got a, a kick pedal and a cardboard box. I that's can't right. remember which song that is. Yeah. Um, I think that's cocaine. Cocaine running all around my brain. I'm not sure there's any drums on cocaine, though. Right. That's a good point. What's the one where they're, they're doing, uh, 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 across the county line? I'm like, every song, it's funny. It's all kind of, every song, it's like a concept album about being on the road. And the great thing about the title track, Running on Empty, is him talking about, we just talked about Alex Chilton, him first getting on the road at 17 and then 18 and 20 and 24. And he's writing about how the road has changed, how the world has changed. And boy, has it ever. I mean, from the mid to late 60s to the early 70s, the, the cultural shift, the political shift, the, the medical shift, the gender shift, the civil rights shift, everything is just this massive. And on the road in the swirl of all this are all these musicians writing about it. And I think Jackson really takes a, does a really nice job in a solemn way of, of couching all that. And I thought it would be a good song to play after that Alex song because it's very forlorn. It's a beautiful song, and this is recorded in a hotel room along the way somewhere in 1975 because I believe this record came out in 76 or maybe 77. This one's not on the bus? No, on the bus was one of the – yeah. Well, that's a good question. It, I think You know why I think it's on a hotel room? Because it's very, very quiet. There's one of them where you could hear the bus rolling along in the background – and then at some point in the song, it's, it's edited and it's them on stage because you could hear in the break the people start to clap and then the band kicks in. It's really neat how they did that. I, nothing I, but time is recorded on the bus. Nothing but time. And that's the one where Russ Kunkel plays the snare high hat in a cardboard box with foot pedal. <laughs> this go. song, if you look in the credits for this record. Yes, go ahead, please. Um, this song was recorded in Road 301, in Room 301, uh, Cross Keys in Columbia, Maryland, outside of Baltimore. Um, that's uh, on August 27th, 77, and also mixed in a live version from the Garden State Art Center, which is the PNC, right? In Holmdale, exactly where we're right. playing this summer, yep. on September 7th, about two weeks later. So that's um, the cool thing about this recording, yeah. So if you're ever in room 301 of the Cross Keys Inn, <laughs> you know, dig it. It's that's cool, you know? <laughs> it is. And uh, with what more road song is it? A song called The Road, written on the road, played on stage. And in a hotel room. It's the whole thing right there. This is Jackson Brown from well, Running on Empty. I want to say one more thing about yes, this album. Please. It is kind of a very rare live album in this sense that it is all originals. Right. Like usually the live, they're all un- unrecorded songs previously. Usually live albums are where you play all your hits and all your, all your, all your famous songs. But this is a live album in, recorded with entirely new material. Everything on here is a, is an unreleased is a song that, he, no like, that is it. just on this record. Right. You know, uh, I guess "Stay" at the end of "Load Out" is is right. is a cover. But right. I mean, for the most part, 
This is all new stuff, which is really, I don't know any, there's very few live albums like that. You know, where someone writes a bunch of new material and puts it out this way. And, and it's also, strangely enough, his most successful record. It I'm pretty was. sure it's his biggest record. Made him a star. No question about it. Yeah. From, so this album came out in 78 then. Is that right? 77. Well, okay, so late 77 because he recorded some of this stuff actually in 1977. Oh, I think it's 77, but it doesn't make sense. Maybe it, it is surprising. If no, it's no, no. I think it did come out then. Well, I know that no, it... No, it did. It, no, Yes, it released December 6, 1977. Yeah, because I yeah. know that it was the, it was a couple of st- spots ahead of Warren Zevon's an album that he co-produced with Wadi Wachtel, Excitable Boy, at the same time. That, that album was just ahead of it um, on the charts. Anyway, so this is a song called The Road, Jackson Brown and a bunch of guys playing in a hotel room, and then the full band on stage uh, from Running On Empty. Another 
is only for a while You stuck about the rules And you roll away the miles Gamblers in the neon Clinging to guitars You write about the moon But you're wrong about the stars When you stop to let them know you got it down It's just another town along the road I love that fiddle, the David Lindley fiddle. Um, it just sounds so good. I, I like the way, I love the way. I used to go see David Lindley play a lot when I was a kid. He had that band El Rio X. Yes, pretty great. Yes, I believe uh, Jorge Calderon played with them a bit too. Yeah, that's a good. They they actually got on Saturday Night Live. They played on Saturday Night Live. El Rio X. Yes, they were one of the bands. You know, um, the other thing about that. Uh, that reminds me, speaking of uh, tours and going along with you guys, I met you guys to join your tour at, at the PNC. And it's funny, I saw Counting Crows there the first time in 96, 97, whatever your your second tour, the recovering was. Then I saw another one where my wife and I scalped tickets so we could see really close because I always loved the band and how they worked together um, for Desert Life. the Desert Life. And then... Um, and then probably another time after that, and then the summer before you and I started working together. So I probably saw Counting Crows there probably like four or five times, and I've seen a lot of shows there. I was, I was at the show where uh, Sinead, O'Connor, Sinead O'Connor refused to play the national anthem there. before Nobody even knew they played the national anthem. I, I don't even know if they still do. I guess because it was a state-run facility or something and became a furor here in 1990. But it's, it's a great venue, but similar to all the other venues that you see. And um, my parents had... Uh, had uh, subscription tickets to see like classical music there and other shows there uh, in the 70s. Uh, a great venue. It's, I can't believe it's even been around that long, that venue. That's a long time ago. That's funny. Yeah. A great song. Great song about like the road. Voice. Yes. Uh, so I want to play a song. This is a different, another like sort of off take on touring. Uh, this is a song by The Hold Steady. Um, and it, it starts to be a guy remembering... Uh, recounting an experience with a girl. It started when we were dancing. It got heavy when we, went, when we got to the bathroom. We didn't go back to her place. We went to some place where she cat sits. She said, I know I look tired, but everything's fried here in Memphis. Now they want to know exactly which bathroom. Dude, does it make any difference? It can't be important. And you start to realize that he's not telling a story to us. He's recounting a story to the police who are interviewing him. You know, um, 
And then the chorus is, yeah, sure, I'll tell my story again. In bar light, she looked all right. In daylight, she looked desperate. That's all right. I was desperate, too. I'm getting pretty sick of this interview. Subpoenaed in Texas, sequestered in Memphis. You know, and you realize, like, oh, he's being interviewed by the police about something this girl did or he and this girl did Mm -hmm. sometime in the past when he was on tour. You know, uh, he says in the next verse, I think she drove a new Mustang. I guess it might be a rental. I remember she had satellite radio. I guess she seemed a bit nervous. Do you think I'm that stupid? What the hell? I'll tell the story again. In bar light, she looked all right. In daylight, she looked desperate. That's all right. I was desperate, too. I'm getting pretty sick of this interview. Subpoenaed in Texas. Sequestered in Memphis. And at the end of the song, he says in the outro, I went there on business. Which, is, of course, if you're in a band, is touring, you know? Sure. Um, but it's a story about tour just told from the perspective of someone later on who's in trouble with the cops for whatever the hell they did. I don't know what that was. It doesn't. There's no. Doesn't say at all. But it's nice. A cool little mystery because what if he's traveling through town and you know you, that you you meet a girl there and you have a one night stand and you move to the next town. It's very transient. But then somehow the girl either disappears or dies or some bad thing happens. Maybe she steals his credit card and, and does something terrible. With I'm saying any of that stuff and yeah. he doesn't know because he's already thousands or hundreds of miles away. You know. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's fun. <laughs> I always thought it was something she did. And he was being questioned about it, but I don't know. You know, that's a that's without looking at the lyrics. And I was looking at the lyrics. Like, I'm not sure what says that about it. Uh, that's what I thought originally, just listening to it when we were touring with him. I used to think that's what the hell it was about. Um, but I've always thought it's a great song because it's a really original way to look at a touring moment. You know, uh, you know, we we travel all over the place and intersect with all these people's lives wherever we go, and just for moments in some cases. And then later on, the police are after him because I, you know, I, I had a point in my life where the FBI got in touch with me about something that I had nothing to do with, but someone had given them my name. And uh, right. yeah. that that provided a little bit of uh, discomfort for me. Just a little... It, well, I, actually, it wasn't that... It was actually kind of fun because I knew I hadn't done anything, so talking to the FBI was sort of interesting. <laughs> right. um, as long as you weren't a suspect. <laughs> no, I mean, well, I think I was in their minds, but I know I hadn't done anything. You know, it's right. like... Uh, it was about, like, uh, burning... Uh, Firebombing churches. Uh, you know, wow. I, was, I, when I, I, I didn't realize that's what it was at the time. I was just like, why are you interrogating? I've never been to any of these places. Oh, Detroit. Well, I've been to Michigan. Sure. Right. Right. But what's the town? No, I've never been there. Well, that also, that's another discussion altogether, but that makes sense because if you are... If you have a level of fame that you have, or even people who are, you know, like even traveling, like say like LeBron James in a, in, in a, in a you know, most famous basketball player or whatever... You're, people know who you are, but you don't know who they are. That's got to be the weirdest feeling in the world because when I would meet, and that's very rare, I don't get it all the time, people were like, hey, man, when I would do, be on TV for something or whatever, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, and I'm trying to make, I don't want the person to think I don't care about them because they seem to care about me, but that's a weird spot to be in, especially when you're traveling through a completely strange place on tour. You meet some people, you have a good time, and then move on, but they know you first, but you have to try to get to know them. This was an interesting situation because I was over in Europe and the FBI were trying to get in touch with me and they kept insisting I come in for an interview, but we kept telling them, no, he's not in the country. Or my managers, because they're talking through my managers. They don't. They didn't have a way to get right. Hold so of you've me. already moved on, like in this song. You've no, not, moved- not just moved on. This is a, this is a long time. I'm long. I, you know, uh, they're talking to the, my managers because, uh, and they when I finally do get on the phone with them, I call from England because, you know, I don't want to, like, I want to help out or whatever it is, you know. Right. I call you know the serious. FBI offices and I'm talking to them and they're asking me about, have I ever been in Michigan? And yes, 
you know, of course. <laughs> I, I there several times last year. Why were you there? Uh, I'm in a band. I was playing shows, you know. Um, have you ever been to this town? No, not that I know of. I, that doesn't seem familiar to me. Um, and what about this church? And I was like, no, I, I, first of all, I'm, I'm Jewish. Second of all, I'm not religious and I don't go to church. And um, no, I've never been to that church. Uh, and then he asked me a, a name. And I said, oh, I know that name. And he said, really, how? And I, I couldn't figure it out. I, I just, I don't know. It's just really familiar to me. And then I realized it was someone who wrote a lot of letters to me. Uh, back then, you know, when we used to get the fan mail, and this person would write letters to, uh, and they'd go to Geffen. And every week, Geffen would ship like seven letters every week. And each of these letters was like 10 pages on both sides of the page. So like 20 pages of writing um, every day for the longest time. I had like a huge pile of these letters. And I just recognized the name from that. Um, and uh, when I finally remembered it, they're like, oh, so she is someone you know. And I said, no, I, I don't know her at all. Well, then why is she writing you letters? And I was like, well, I'm in a band. And she's <laughs> writing me letters, you know, I guess. Right. I, uh, so you correspond with her. I'm like, no, no, I just remember that I got a pile, like literally a pile of these letters. Well, that seems a little suspicious to me, sir. I was like, well, I guarantee you if you call Geffen right now or my managers, there's a pile there and they can give them to you for sure. You know, and when I finally convinced them, it's like, this has nothing to do with me at all, you know. All right. Um, and they were just doing their job and investigating. What it turned out was they were interviewing the congregants at this church that got burned. Remember when all the church burnings were going on? Mostly sure. black churches in the South, but this wasn't one. And that Michigan. was FBI crime number one. You know, that was like, right. what is going on here with these church burnings? And uh, it turned out that in, in uh, interviewing the congregants, some woman there gave them my name as someone they should talk to. Is there anyone you think of that might know about this? They asked everyone, and I guess, you right. know, and she said something like, you might want to talk to this person. And in a weird way, that was her way of reaching out to me. Yeah. I shouldn't be saying this story on the air because I don't want to encourage anyone else to do this <laughs> yeah. ever. But like, yeah. it was, uh, it was bizarre. But, it, but, but that is a great way of introducing this song in a way because it's similar, but also it's what I was saying before. It's like when you're passing through town, it's everything of that moment for the people in the town. And it's not that it's nothing to you. You're enjoying that one moment. Then you move to the next town. They may see you only one time throughout the whole summer, but you're going constantly. This, this show must go on, as they say. And so these little dramas can happen throughout the tour. And well, that's a piece of drama right there. It's why you try to never, ever ever cancel a gig you know and i've had to cancel some when i lost my voice years ago but it's devastating and uh the only times we've canceled in recent years were like uh we had a, a sinkhole that ate the gig in san francisco a couple <laughs> years ago and uh didn't you have a light a giant light fall no, down a fan that that the a fan, fan. A, a storm came in and, and you broke showed me fan, this fan what a, a huge. 20 feet long fan blade yes. that was hanging above the crowd you know because you know it's easy for other people to say well you're going to play a million gigs this summer. Why wouldn't you cancel one? But it's it's the only gig those people get to see, and you know, people don't necessarily forget that. It's a it's a it's a big deal. Um, yes. Anyways, we're way off the subject. I want to play this song. This is a bizarre song about life on the road uh, <laughs> and the repercussions of it. Uh, this is uh, "Hold Steady" from their album uh, "Stay Positive." This is "Sequestered in Memphis." <laughs> Thank you. 
We went to some place where she can't sit She said I know I look tired But everything's fried here in Memphis Man, I wanna know exactly which bathroom Dude, does it make any difference? It can't be important great song i really love that song um speaking of steve earl it's got that steve earl thing going on there he's got a great inflection in his voice you could tell he's frustrated and angry the way he's presenting it and yeah. the lyrics are exactly what you said they're really really cool i'm getting really sick of this interview <laughs> it's like it's just it's such a fresh take on the road yeah. thing it's just you just rarely hear that i, I don't know you rarely hear that song because he never says in there uh, you know, it, it, usually if you were to hear a song about that, you'd be talking about the cops and how the cops are trying to get it out of you and, yeah. and you're standing up to the man. But there's none of that in there. He leaves all of that out and lets you realize slowly over the course of the song, maybe what the fuck he's talking about, right. you know? What happened here? It's like a photograph, you know, a photograph of something that happened here, like a party happened here or a crime scene or uh, some weird thing. You have to figure it out. You have to figure out the clues that he's giving you, what it could be. And uh, my guess is you're probably right. The woman did something nefarious or weird that he's been, obviously she did something illegal because I, at first when you told me the story, 
my first thought was that something happened to her. But I think she probably did something. Because I like how he describes, you know, she's got a Mustang. It's probably a rental, which means she's blowing through town too. Yeah, she's, yeah. You know what I mean? She's, she, he, he's blowing through town. They're, they're two... Ships passing in the night, and some shit went down uh, in uh, in Texas, and they catch up to him in Memphis. Yeah, he doesn't even know where she lives. It started when we were dancing. It got heavy when we got to the bathroom. We didn't go back to her place. We went to some place where she cat sits. Love that. <laughs> you know the detail of that. Yes, she says, "I know I look tired, but everything's fried here in Memphis." That's a great line too. I love that. It just it just wipes you out all the fried food. Now they want to know exactly which bathroom, dude. Does it make any difference? It can't be important. Those are just like his his capture of that is fantastic. <laughs> so let's talk about Dan Byrne. Yes, um, my my good friend Dan Byrne wrote this song. Uh, what did it say? Like in the, I think this record came out in the early aughts. I want to say two thousand two. I believe he wrote it in the late, late 90s, early aughts. This is a record called New American Language that was produced by Chuck Plotkin, who worked with Springsteen quite a bit, most famously on Nebraska. And uh, love Dan's work. And I think this is Dan's finest record. And one of the greatest songs on it is a song called Black Tornado. And I remember it's one of the first songs that my wife loved of his because she had just lost her dad. And Dan lost his dad as a young man. And uh, there's a, a line in there where he says, you know, I, I go to visit my my, my dad's tombstone uh every once in a while it's like when he's blowing through town uh dan's originally from iowa so he's a midwestern guy and i love all the different referrals to bars and hotels and you know hiding my clothes in some field in west des moines you know and I'm, i'm looking for something warm and fuzzy tonight but i'm not likely to find it in Northwest Missouri or whatever the lyrics are, I'm saying it off the top of my head. Uh, there's just like, just like the last song, there's just snapshots of what it's like to travel. I mean, Dan was the ultimate traveling musician. He just constantly on the road, always in a van, either by himself or with another, you know, with a band and just road, 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 traveling guy. That's how he, he made his bones. That's how he loved to play and, and meet the people and play. So I think this song depicts that. There's quite a few songs he's written about, about the road, and it's funny. There's a song on here called The Alaska Highway um, where he talks about all the different places to play, and he makes references to other musicians. But this song's very personal. Um, anyway, this is a Black Tornado from New American Language. This is Dan Byrne singing about the road. Well, it's got the, I just wanted to say one thing. It's got this great... Uh, sequence in it where he says and everything is changing faster than I can describe all I really know is to grab the wheel and drive I look for love and some adventure and I try not to let my own breathing scare me off the road there is a tombstone of my father I visit sometimes there is a tombstone of my father I visit sometimes yeah and and there's a there's a line in here which you know of course I I love it it's a it's a day off it's an off day it's a Budweiser Budgetel Bukowski kind of night (laughs) You know, he, he he's, he's not playing that night, so what does he have to do? He's just sitting in his shitty hotel room drinking pet, horrible beer out of a can. <laughs> I love the Bukowski reference. All right, so yeah, good uh, good intro. This is Dan Burns' Black Tornado, a very sweet, um, bittersweet, I should say, song about the road, memories, and, you know, playing music for a living. Speaking later and later in the day 
talk till maybe eight o'clock at night. It keeps me whole, keeps me holy, keeps me well in the mind. Even when I'm on the road, keeps me coming up for air, keeps me airing out some coma, keeps me cool. I could call home And every girl I kiss Well I just cross her off my list I don't go far I just go crazy I'm buried all of my old clothes Out in some field in West Des Moines And if you judge me tonight Judge me by songs I write That's who I
Dan Byrne, Black Tornado from New American Language. A couple of things uh, before we wrap up on Dan and move on. Uh, full disclosure, Dan and I worked together. I worked together on Dan's first novel that came out just a couple of years after this record uh, called Quitting Science, which is fantastic. It talk about a ro- it's about it's a novel about his experiences touring in Europe and all the characters' uh, names are changed, but the real uh, people that he met along the way. It's fun to try to figure out who these historical or you know real people are and how he describes them. Uh, and then he wrote the the preface for my second collection of work called Midnight for Cinderella in 2005. But I did want to mention Dan because uh, over the winter he had a, a terrible accident on his guitar playing hand uh, on a snowblower of all things. And there's a GoFundMe site out there for him. Uh, you know he had to have uh, radical reconstruction surgery. It says that he can. It did save his knuckles. So that was terrifying. He's actually in Europe now touring with a guitar player playing his songs. So he's still plowing ahead. And my favorite Dan story is of my wife. I mentioned her before about this song and about her dad passing and her and Dan kind of connected on that. Uh, Dan stays at the Carlton Arms, the old Carlton Arms Hotel here in, in New York, sort of like an artist enclave place, a, a, you know, a Chelsea Hotel Junior. And he gets to stay there for nothing, and he paints the walls of the hotel room he stays in. <laughs> he did one with his, his daughter Lulu. But back in the early aughts, he and my wife, because my wife is a faux painter for years, painted one of the rooms – and it was great. And he's like, yeah, let me give you some money. Let me do – she goes, no, play me some songs. So we sat in the hotel room, empty hotel room that was just painted by my wife and Dan. And he sat down and played a couple of songs. And he played this song on acoustic in the room. And it was really neat. It was so cool. And uh, so he's a good guy and I love him very much. And these are the kind of people I – like yourself, uh, Adam, and, and other people I've met through writing about music that have really enriched my life in a way where I've learned about the process of making music and traveling – to, to pay the bills and to get your music out there and connect with audiences. It's amazing. It's sort of like the subtext of what we're talking about today, I think, with these songs. All right, I want to play one more song today. This is, uh, this is me and Immer and Chris Seafried actually produced. Our friend Chris Seafried from uh, Joe 90 and the Low Stars actually produced this. And Chris is producing, he's a great singer songwriter. He's actually doing a lot of producing these days done the last couple Trumbull and Shorty records and uh, he produced this he was doing the music for a soundtrack to a a great movie with Ron Eldard and Lois Smith called Roadie great movie and it's a pretty like dark dark picture of a guy who's been on the road his whole life he left Long Island with his favorite band uh, the quintessential Long Island band Blue Oyster Cult when he was a kid basically and has been on the road with them ever since then in the road crew and he's just gotten fired for doing something somewhere in Michigan, I think. And they just basically leave him there and he's got to get home. Um, and you know, he stayed with the band through the beginning through when they were big stars. And then he stayed with them when they were, you know, more of a band people remembered. Uh, and he got fired and he goes home to this, to this town in long Island where he comes from. Queens, somewhere in Queens, and uh, he sees the old friends that... And he's kind of, his life has been like making up these stories that are bigger than it really was. Well, he is. It's just that he has been on the road with them. He, well, he sure. said, that's right, he, he kind of said he was their manager yeah, for Yeah, something, right. And, right. Uh, he, he bloats the idea of it. So when he comes back, he's completely crestfallen. And Bobby Cannavale, a great uh, actor, plays like his old high school buddy who used to torture him all the time. Not really buddy, just the guy Not that was buddy, maybe but... cooler than he was. And maybe, yes. Uh, and he married the girl he had a crush on. Yes. And, you know, 
it's when he comes back and goes back to his life and he's kind of not been telling the truth about what's going on in it. Who plays and his mom in it? Lois Smith. Yes. She's like a magnificent actress. At the very end of the movie, he comes home. He's been kind of uh, crushed. Yeah. And he goes to his old bedroom and he's sitting in his old room, which he's kept exactly the same all these years. He's never really been back. Mm-hmm. And he looks out the window and in the in the garden is his mom. Yeah. And as, as he looks out the window and you see his mom in the garden, the song starts to play. And then he goes down and he helps his mom with the gardening, his elderly mother. And uh, the song plays over the whole credits. And it was uh, uh, Immer played lo- the guitars on it, the electric, acoustic and the electric, I think. Uh, Charlie plays the piano and I sing. And I, I don't know what Chris plays on it. I can't remember who played the drums on it. Um, it's a song. It's we played the road from the from running on empty. This is the last song on running on empty, which is sort of Jackson Brown's tribute to his uh, his road crew. Um, I never understood that when I was a kid, uh, and now that I've lived for twenty years with the same guys who really do most of the work every day, uh, you know, I, I can totally understand this song, and maybe that's why it was such an appealing song to sing when Chris asked me to do this. And uh, I had a lot of trouble doing it. The first couple times I went to record it, I came home and just hated the vocal on it. I thought it was terrible. <laughs> I was so pissed about it. And uh, my girlfriend at the time was like, well, what's the problem? I'm like, I, I don't know. It's just, and she's like, it sounds good. I'm like, it's not good. It's not, it's not good. And then I went back in and I just got it like the next day. Did you have Jackson Brown in your brain? Because that song is a big hit. It was in green. It's the quintessential road song. It must be really hard. It's like singing no, over the rainbow the, or something. No, it's yeah. not. It's not a thing. I, it wasn't that way for you? No, that stuff doesn't really... I don't think that stuff is a problem. I mean, I mean, I guess you can let it be one. But it's like, you know, someone else's original vocal is never a stumbling block for me doing covers. It's just something great to refer to. And, uh, you know... I just tried to find my own place to sing it, just like just like any cut. Co- I mean, we've done a million covers, and all of them had somebody's great vocal in it. And in fact, every single one of them was obviously a song I absolutely loved, right. or else why would we be covering it? And with that sense, uh, every single one of them was something I had a, a, a vocal ingrained in my head. On, right. You know? right. Um, because you really do put your own stamp on this. The song, there's there's certain inflections in your voice in this song because we've talked about it before and played it quite a few times in this apartment where you're really getting inside the guy's head who's singing about being on the road. It's it's very authentic. And I don't think there's parts of it that are me remembering Jackson's vocal too, probably. But it's pretty different, and we had to end it differently because their version goes into the outro, goes into the, the, the cover of "Stay," right? Which and we didn't want to do that, so we figured out a different way to end it um, that actually worked pretty well, I thought. Um, but it actually turned out to be a great song. I, I really love this cover, and it's never really been heard much because I don't think it's on a record at all. I don't think they put I out a soundtrack to Rody. I could um, not find. I was watching Rody one afternoon on Cinemax or something and I'm just sitting there watching it I'm like I picked it up like 10 minutes late and I'm like this movie is great and it gets to the end and I hear it and I hear your voice and it's before we started working together and I'm like is this a Counting Crows cover of this? I couldn't find it anywhere It's funny I was going through some stuff sending songs over to our new publishers recently and the truth is a lot of our really good songs have been on uh, really indie movies and therefore there are no soundtracks often and they're not anywhere else you know we've always been kind of like well I've been less hesitant about giving songs to indie films and uh, 
So there are a few out there where there are a few Counting Crows songs that are only on those records. Um, no records. They're only on those movies. In the film, yeah. Uh, anyways, this is one of them. And then we're, we're probably going to cut it after this. I don't know if we'll come back or not, but you'll see. Yes. Uh, but we should say that uh, I think we can get two episodes out of this because I think this is a good subject, especially with you guys being on the road. People might be listening to this and they're going to go see Counting Crows this week. You know? Yeah, maybe we'll do a second uh, road, uh, road Songs one. Uh, in any case, we're ending this one with this song. This is, uh, I don't know what we called this. It's me and Emmer and uh, Charlie and Chris Seafried and some other people. I can't remember who else is on it. Uh, playing The Loadout from the movie Roadie, which you should all probably see. It's a great movie. It really is. Time 
I forgot that we put that cheering on at the end of the song, <laughs> the, the, because it's a kind of a tribute to uh, to Running on Empty, which has you know sure. the live live album that it is. Even though that's completely not live, we uh, we put that on at the very end. So since it's the last thing you hear in the movie about a guy who spent his life on the road, it seemed like there should be some clapping at the end. Agreed. Also, I I just like it when people clap for me. Um, yes. So <laughs> we added it on there. Um, and I could not find any record of who the hell that is on that song with us. Can I just say, though, that you mentioned about how you don't go into stay. And, you know, for anybody listening to the podcast today, you know, go and listen. To, I, I know you've probably heard it. But if you haven't, listen to Jackson Brown's version of that where it goes into stay. And it's very different at the end of ours. Completely different. And the way it's arranged where there's like this cool little chord change and then it goes and then Adam goes up and sings. And then it's totally setting up this descending uh, towards the end. He says, I just want to play. I love that. And that's a great way to wrap this episode because um, you said it before. It's like the, you just got that two-hour pocket where you can play. Everything else leads up to that. The travel, the hotel, the being away from family, the phone calls, the meals, the figuring out schedules, the sound checks. But sitting in that waiting, 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 waiting. Bang. Here come the lights and you get to be counting crows for an hour and a half, two hours. Bang. Back and do it all over again. It's yeah, it's that song does it beautifully, and you sing it with a great amount of emotion. Uh, it reminds me a lot of how uh, different because that's more of a celebratory song, and it's fun when you go into the Richard Pryor and you you sing the you know the eight tracks and stereo and the, and all this stuff. I love that it, just the way you phrase it, which is it's in the original song, but the way you did it, and as opposed to Al Chilton, 
which was which is a much darker version of it. And even Dan with his Black Tornado. But I love the fact that you combine the two in that. It's really beautifully arranged. Yeah, you know, I, I was realizing when I went back in to record the vocal, I just kind of told myself to just open up my voice and just just sing it and just let it be let it be open and relaxed and don't overwork the details of it just feel it and sing it and have some real it's really about having some real openness in the voice and not yeah i don't know it it it, it feels like a very uh, like that's the vocal i wanted it to be it came out great it um, did Anyways, we should get out of here. This has been the Underwater Sunshine Podcast. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, what do you usually say at the end? Uh, you say your name. Oh, and I, I say, say my I, name. I have once again been been myself. Uh, <laughs> and I'm me. And he's him. And that's that. And we're us. <laughs> Live from here, it's us. Uh, Goodbye. Peace. <laughs>